Bueno. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to the Chaubert Show. I'm your host, Chaubert Chaubert. Excited to be back, as always, with some really cool guests of mine who I've been fortunate to know for, gosh, I have to think about this, but almost maybe eight to 10 years. Andrea Walm, it's good to have you here on the Chaubert Show. Thanks for joining in. Thank you so much, Chaubert. I'm so excited to be here. The show is awesome, and I can't wait to just like dive into detail on all the stories. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Wanted to just quickly introduce yourself to you know the guests and people who are listening in by quickly your background and who is Andrea Wong? Yeah, of course. So, so thanks so much. Um, so yeah, overall, what my day to day is today is I am a general partner at a really awesome late stage venture fund called Manhattan Venture Partners, otherwise known as MVP. We've uh, been in existence for about eight years. We've raised four dedicated funds. We have under $2 billion under management. We are investors in awesome companies like Discord and Epic Games, who obviously owns and makes Fortnite. Um, We are investors in Revolut, Klarna, and a lot of just like really amazing companies that are very centralized in New York, San Francisco, London, Europe, and, you know, greater Asia as well. So that's generally like my day-to-day focus. But prior to this, I'm definitely that, you know, female operator, San Francisco person obsessed with San Francisco. And we could talk about that because we know about my journey. San Francisco person that was there during an amazing era. I've built uh, three startups, sold two of them. I worked at the NASDAQ Stock Exchange. And then I was at a company called Carta, which manages equity for startups across every landscape. So that's really my background over the last 12 years, give or take. That's incredible. And she forgot to mention, she has a couple of cute doodles. <laughs> yes. <laughs> what kind of doodles yes. are they? <laughs> yes. Doodle fam with you. Um, so I've got two Bernie doodles. <laughs> yes. Two uh, Bernie's mountain dogs that are mixed with either a mini poodle or like a toy poodle. I've got two, so it's like a different poodles, but... I don't know oh, about wow. you, but I think like you're the best breed, really. I'm jealous. Yeah. Hey, we've been actually thinking of looking at the Bernadoodles. We have the Australian Labradoodles that have a mix of Labrador, Poodle, and a little bit of, uh, what is it? Uh, it's a Labrador, not a Retriever, a Poodle, and um, I'm blanking out the last, uh, there's another breed that's oh. actually mixed with it. Yeah. And everybody asks like, what, you know, why Australian? What is it? And I believe they just started breeding First oh, time yeah. oh. <laughs> oh god i'm blanking too i'm like i feel like you and i like we should know these things and it's like uh i don't know i don't know but i know what you're saying and it's cool though right because like these doodles like i don't know about you but i can't have the shedding i've got allergy issues in my family and mm. i just think they're fun breeds like they're just down to do anything and always in a good they're, mood they're fun they're really cute uh yeah they're very personable and mine, you know, as I mentioned before, our, we started the podcast, like it has a crazy bark. She's a protector. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. So that's an added note. That's for sure. Oh, so I found out, I remember it's Spaniel. So <gasps> oh. She has a Spaniel as well. So she has definitely the Spaniel sniff. Yes. You know, smell really good stuff. So usually what I like to ask people is who are guests on the show, where are you originally from and where did you grow up? Yeah. So I grew up in New England. I grew up in a very blue collar town in Connecticut. And I say that blue collar disclaimer, because for some reason, when you, I don't know, generally the vibe I get feedback I get when I'm like, Oh, I'm from Connecticut. People are like, Oh, you're from like Greenwich or Stanford or like one of these like really, yeah, like these cute little like beach, like high end towns that are on the border of New York. But in New York, I mean, I'm sorry, Connecticut's a small state, and I'm definitely from the very immigrant neighborhoods in Connecticut that are kind of like mid-state between Boston and New York City. So I grew up going to Boston and New York City all the time, which I think really shaped me as a person and like drew my love for big cities and like thriving environments all the time. And my parents are both Italian, so I'm, I guess I'm 100% Italian with that in mind. My dad was born and raised in Sicily and he like oh. is very Sicilian. You kind of would, you would think he's from Mexico. If you saw him, he's amazing. <laughs> my mom's from Northern Italy. 
And overall, like my family is just like very hardworking, like immigrant, you know, everyone had to put themselves through school. My siblings and I also had to do that, you know? So I really just like, I'm so humbled by my parents and my family because it's just like you, right? Like it's like, everyone had to do their work to like make it. And our parents like showed us that hustle and that grit. And I think the grit and like just absolute perseverance is like the model I had growing up for sure. Yeah, totally. I mean, the, the whole idea of like moving from to another continent, especially like I'd say pre-internet generation was is definitely one thing is just like you have to go and have massive grit and persistence to you know do what they did and, and have a family. It's it's definitely humbling, like you mentioned. Yeah, and the city thing is pretty exciting. It actually reminds me a little bit of uh, when I was a kid. I'm a local from Bay Area, but outside that, I always had fascination for New York City and Tokyo. I still haven't gone to Tokyo, funny oh. enough. Um, but I love going to New York City. Just like the energy feel of like the immense amount of people and just ideas and things. It's exciting. You know, did you have any cool stories? You know, you went to Boston, New York. Obviously, there's a little bit of rivalry between those towns, especially in the sports world. Yes. Uh, you know, like do you have any cool stories there uh, relatable to maybe that spurred kind of your career or just more on a, a fun note? Yeah. So here's what I'll say. If you grew up in New England, I think there's yeah. like three, there's like three industries. If you live in New England, it's healthcare, insurance, or you work at ESPN. Like that's, oh, yeah. <laughs> that's everyone Bristol, in New yeah. England. Yeah, exactly. Bristol, Connecticut, ESPN, like, and you work at one of those three or, but this is more like outlier. You might work for the WWE, Dana, Dana White, that's or right. you might do Jerry Springer show as a career. Cause that was also in Connecticut, oddly enough. So just like a, a hodgepodge of like entertainment mixed with sports world and insurance and healthcare. So it's just like a really funny hodgepodge. Um, sure. My dad and mom, both my parents worked in insurance their entire careers, you know, same mm-hmm. company. Like, I just feel like, I don't know about you, but our parents' generation was so loyal to a company, you know, they stayed and they're still there. Their entire career has been with one company and like, yeah, like that's, at the end of the day, like I know I myself am not like that. I don't think anyone in the upcoming generation is like that at all. Like we all want diversity and like flexibility and all that cool stuff. And with all that said, like my parents really taught me like, you know, the reason why I'm obsessed with technology, the reason why I'm obsessed with Silicon Valley and like a very like, just like the historical nature of building startups, building in tech, like all this stuff really stems from the fact that my dad like he was on like the vendor relations team basically for like the biggest um, insurance company in the country. And uh, he's still there. Yeah. And uh, with that said, he would get like schmoozed all day, every day by companies like Dell and HP and, you know, like Apple and they would come in and they would roll out like the red carpet and say, Hey, come buy our computers, come buy our software. And, we'll take care of you. We'll do vendor dinners and all this stuff. So my dad would come home at night and I had three siblings and he would come home at night, like every week. And he'd have a suitcase full of like free swag from Dell or Apple or like IBM. And I would wear that stuff to school, like so proudly, like a Dell t-shirt, you know? Um, (laughs) And I thought that was so cool. Cause I was like, this is like, I mean, you remember, right? Like we grew up like that era of like going from the early nineties to the late nineties when computers became a big thing in our house and everyone ended up getting a home computer. And like, that was a big deal, you know? Yeah. I think it was similar. Like for me, it was like, I think around my 15th or 16th birthday, I got my first personal computer and this is like an Intel 386. And just at that time, the internet and dial up was coming in. So yeah, I mean, there are definitely memories that pop up then. And then when I went to high school, it was that generation where like, it was from the Netscape to Yahoo. So I was like the Yahoo generation before the yeah. Google generation <laughs> uh, and getting used to kind of the internet. And like the big thing was like, oh, I could do fantasy sports or, you know, things like that. And what, what was the trends back then? So yeah, definitely it was, you know, and were you going to be the tie joining that or are you just going to be like overwhelmed and not, which I'd actually, funny enough, see some parallels with the crypto web three space a little bit right now. And I'm happy to pick your brain about that later. 
So then did you pursue, you know, more of a, like you mentioned, white collar career path, or did you go and say like, oh, I like this tech and get into like the university level projects? I'm curious. Yeah. So I'll say this, like I was just so annoyed with school, like high school and and everything. I don't know. I was not a great school person. I was a very, um, you know, I don't know about you, but I was very selfish in how I wanted to learn. And I, I wanted to learn what I wanted to learn. And I thought like, well, why are we learning, you know, the, basically the equation, like, why are we learning Y equals MX plus B, you know, yeah. like, why are we doing, who uses that day to day, you know? Yeah. Um, and so I, interestingly enough, being where I was in school, I actually ended up going to two high schools at once at wow. the same time. So I went okay. from, I went to, yeah, so wild. I went to one high school from 7am to noon and another from one to four thirty, and the one I went to from one to four thirty was like an arts, like creative, like arts magnet high school. So it was really like left brain for me. Yeah. It was a bunch of artists and people who like you know took their shoes off and you called the teachers by their first name and everyone did theater kind of school, you know. But I honestly, I'm going to tell you this: like I personally think that some of the coolest people I've met in the technology field are very left and right brain. Like they're very creative, they're deep, they're humbled. And like, I thank my high school journey for that before I ever got to college because I was immersed in a very arts oriented scene before ever becoming a real professional, you know? So I I think- That's definitely cool. It's almost like you went to like a pre-university level kind of experience because you did kind of both- the regular school with like the almost like a school that focuses on your passions, which I think that this is the direction of education that's going to lead to like how early can we help the children focus on like what they're really good at versus like this ex World War II industrial revolution style education that basically you know early in the morning till eight or three o'clock you're studying the same old same old like you mentioned and a huge percentage of like probably the, the kids don't really do well or they just get by. You know, so, and the U.S. generally is known for its universities and the, the strength of the university level before they set people up to careers. And I think a lot of that's dynamically changing. Did your parents yeah. actually support this? Did you kind of rebel and do this? And then they're like, oh, actually, she's doing well. She's keeping busy in the, you know, with good projects and good things and, you know, other stuff. I'm curious about that. I appreciate that. No, for sure. So my my parents were, are, you know, to this day, like, thank the heavens for great parents, right? Like, I was the oldest of four. Like I said, though, like my parents came from like they had to completely make every dollar themselves, like zero support, zero, you know, their their own parents were immigrants. And to this day, like my remaining grandparents are, you know, they don't even speak English. Like they've gone, you know, 60 or 70 years in the U.S. without speaking English. They speak Italian, which I like am like so humbled by every single day. And so with all that said, my parents were like, listen, if you think that you can make a career and a living out of anything you're doing, like we will fully support you because you are passionate. And if you could show that passion, like we got you. I also like luckily in just a fr- like the wildest dreams of my life, I won yeah. a random raffle to go to my art magnet school, like the one in the afternoon. Okay. Otherwise, cool. yeah, there was like a tuition tied to it, like a cash tuition, which I couldn't afford. Like my parents were like, we would not be, yeah. but I, I just won it in a lottery, like the tuition. It was random. So yeah, with with all that said, like that was like my upbringing was like I had really artsy friends, but I was like wildly obsessed with technology and like was building computer systems in my like regular day-to-day public high school. But then I would go out to my magnet school and like do art and like learn the history of art and jazz theory and like creative writing and theater and film. And like, that was awesome. I'm very, you know, thankful for all that. Yeah. I mean, I had a similar thing. I remember in middle school, I had a choice between one of my dreams was to be like a commercial pilot. And there was a, mm-hmm. a you know, a flight school, funny enough for extracurricular program or, or use like computer basic skills, which is typing. And uh, this is like pre-code that they didn't have anything like where you could learn computer science back in the day for kids in middle school, unless you were a pure hacker. So I was like, obviously encouraging towards the aviation side. My dad was like, no, you should do a computer <laughs> thing because I I will bet that's the direction everything's going. I'm obviously at first I was a little annoyed, but you know he was right. By yeah. the time I was in high school, I was a lot more passionate about the like the tech sector, 
beyond the, you know, the dreams I had in like aviation or sports casting. So when you said, uh, ESPN, I'm like, Oh, Bristol. Yeah. <laughs> so did you then, you know, after high school, you mentioned you were passionate, like it was kind of interesting. You, you mentioned you weren't, but then you actually did what you wanted to do. Was that the same when you went to college? Where did you go to college? Yeah. 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 So, um, great question. Like all good. So I, you know, and, and by the way, we should talk all the sports too. Cause I'm like, a, I'm a huge NFL fan all day. Side yes. note. So there is a New England connection here and my fiance and everybody like, oh, here we go again. So I missed <laughs> Tom Brady by one year in my high school. <gasps> I he went to Sierra High uh, yeah. here in San Mateo. I got in 99. He just graduated in 99 and went to Michigan. Uh, oh, so I know, yeah. obviously, for you folks in New England, he's he was a god for 20 years before he went to Tampa Bay <laughs> uh, <laughs> and brought all those championships and Super Bowls. But it's just kind of surreal because – for me, like this is a guy who went to, to our high school who's now like possibly arguably the greatest quarterback in history of the NFL. So yeah, we could definitely talk more <laughs> later about sports and football if you want, but I thought I'd drop that nugget. Yes. Oh, just so jealous. So, so amazing. I love that. I, another piece of, you know, Bay Area knowledge that, you know, most people don't appreciate, but I love that so much. So yeah, with all that said, you know, I went into college in 2008, going into that. And like, that was a tough year, right? Like 2008 was a right. weird year. I got into a bunch of schools, the whole thing. When I had like, a, just to be real deep here, like I had a deep conversation with my mother at some point in like late July, early August, I was packing up to go to college. I was super excited. And she was like, sat me down and she's like, you know, I know you're taking student loans, but like, it's probably not a good idea to put yourself into super deep debt right now with like the world falling apart. And this mm. is like July, August going into September, right? Like with like yeah. the crash of Lehman Brothers and everything right. that was happening in 2008. And so I really felt like long and hard about that conversation I had with my mom. And I was like, you know what? You're so right. Like, I don't want any debt. Like, and I don't like the world was falling around us all during this time because I don't know if most, you know, young people realize, but like the crash of Lehman Brothers in September of 2008 was like a domino after many domino chips had already fallen. And so like yeah. the world was already falling apart. And like with all that said, the incoming like freshman college class was, I think, really similar in 2008 to like what the probably like incoming September 2020 college freshman class was which was like what mm. is the world gonna look like going into a new like setting you know like pandemic financial crisis like different world altogether so with all that said I actually decided to defer my enrollment to college and I decided instead wow. to go to a local I went to a local state university just to save money on general education like gen ed classes as a way to like not get buried in debt like that's how much fear got instilled in me in a very short, like 30 day span after talking to my mother. So I actually sure. unpacked my boxes. I was going to move to New York city. I was going to go to school, the whole thing. Wow. I unpacked my boxes. I was like, I'm not going to do it. I'm just going to stay, stay local, do my gen ed. And it saved me over $20,000 in, in the end. Well, that's of impressive that you actually you know, took it to heart. You actually did that. Because obviously at that young of age, a lot of people would be like, oh, heck no, I'm going to New York. I'm going to Los Angeles. I'm going wherever the big colleges are, you know, in these college towns to live the college dream and, and you know, get a good education and stuff. So afterwards, I'll have, you know, a good lifestyle. But you realize it early, which is a difficult discussion. And it's something that really was untalked about. But like, it's interesting because the timing was like definitely good that your mother saw that and talked to you about it. So, yeah. And did you stay for long in the state school? Do you have any stories for college or, or something there? So I would say this, like a state school is great because I was very like, I, you know, you go to state school in Connecticut, it's UConn, it's, you know, good camaraderie. But at the end of the day, like I knew quickly that if I stayed at state school, which obviously could have just ended up being my trajectory, I would end up being like, you know, I wouldn't have the career aspirations of what I wanted by living out in California. Like, I think it was my dad, right? Like my dad was the guy who was like in with Dell and HP and Apple mm. and Microsoft. And like, 
he was like, go to the Valley, like go work at these big tech companies, like go learn from them, you know, go be Steve Jobs, like get out of here. And I took that to heart and I like really appreciated my dad for that, like that love for technology and building computers and systems and everything. So, so when I was in my senior year, long story short, I had an adjunct professor. By this time I transferred to NYU from state school, but I was doing like a weird program that NYU offered. And uh, it was great though. It was awesome. And um, I wasn't paying even remotely close to full tuition for this program. And um, I had a professor who said, listen, I work at Google. You should go get certified in Google AdWords because this is 2010. Google SEO was still relatively new. Like the concept of SEO and SEM was still new, sexy. You remember this era, like social media was like the concept of social media as a terminology was like brand new. Right. And so, so anyway, I got certified in Google AdWords. I interviewed at Facebook when it was like, 800 employees. And I ended up getting a really cool job on their ad team, their advertising team. So these were the ads on the right side of the Facebook newsfeed. I don't know if you remember them. It was only on desktop. There was no mobile. And um, by the way, all of the revenue that Facebook had going into their IPO was only based on the ad revenue generated on the newsfeed on the right side of the screen on desktop. There was no mobile. I do remember that. Was that the time when uh, Go Cold Roger on was there? I don't know if you know. Yes. Go Cold. Yes. Yep. Yeah. Just yep. for those he who don't know. He was a legend. Yeah. He's an incredible person. Someone who's like super brilliant, like MI, like a Texas MIT grad. He's worked in like early, supposedly the rumor is that there's a story that Omi Kordistani said when he was like the head of BD at Google under Larry and Sergey, that Go Cold is the mastermind behind like AdWords search and tagging and stuff. And then Zuck, like basically when he left Google, he started Chai Labs, Google, and Zuck just wanted to acquire him. I'm not sure if this is legitimate or not, but like the rumor is like he helped create those ads on the side or at least approve of it. And were you part of his team or associated with this or no, this is just such a big company. I was, so we, um, he, we didn't overlap by, there was a year when he had already left by the time I had joined, but his Got it. Okay. Yeah his legacy really lived on and he stayed like tangentially involved in Facebook. Like to this day, like I love Google, like he's, we're in some Slack groups together and like, I, I see everything he's doing. And I'm like so humbled by him. So like total legacy and everything you described that you've heard is totally what I've heard as well. And he's a phenomenal human being. So and he sits on multiple boards today and helps companies grow. And I love that. Yeah. Um, so this was like, you know, by this time, it was like 2010, 2011 era of, of Silicon Valley. And I think if we just like drop a pin in this, like this was an awesome time to be in Silicon Valley. So, yeah, I mean, you're basically saying like the, the 2010 era was like a token time in Silicon Valley, correct? Yes, it was. It was such a token time. It was the golden era. I think it was golden era number two. I think by the time, you know, Silicon Valley is, I think you and I really knew knew it and, and know it today. like. There was the pre-2008 era and there was like some crazy, amazing stuff that went down in Silicon Valley, obviously, you know, the 90s, going back to the 70s. But I think there was that period of like maybe 2007 to like 2011 where things were kind of brewing, but it was that a lot of companies in Silicon Valley had gone back down to like Palo Alto to the, you know, lower Bay. They were in San Jose. Yeah. And then, you know, kind of fast forward to 2011, 2012, startups stopped being afraid of San Francisco as a city and ended up like reopening or opening brand new offices in the city of San Francisco during that time. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, I, I remember the dot-com boom and, you know, like the whole Bay Area was like insane when it comes to the tech boom. Then when it crashed, San Francisco's like similar situation as 2020 on, uh, like the real estate and people left mostly San Francisco, but like Silicon Valley stayed strong throughout, you know, persevered. And uh, a lot of like the early stage startups kind of trickled out and then the up and coming companies that survived through that, like the Googles, for example, and others persevered. And, and yeah, that is true. I think if I'm not mistaken, Adobe has like offices in San Jose and San Francisco and other places, but like they really emphasize San Jose or a lot of the tech companies as you mentioned, focused on Palo Alto and Silicon Valley, 
and a lot of the VCs want to be driving distance to you. Um, so yeah. hey, you're, if you're a Stanford alum, great. If you're not, try to be close to Stanford to hire people there, for example. But when I'd say Web 2.0 and you know social media kind of boomed, Twitter was already headquartered in in San Francisco, in Soma. There's a few others that were popping in here. But I would say a couple of things. It was one, yeah, a younger generation here. It was a, not, a, not a lot of the hardcore device-based products. It was mostly like media-based products that were based in San Francisco that were growing, like the Yelps, Dropboxes, uh, you know, Airbnbs of the world and others. You know, they were starting, to, starting there and building it out. Yeah. The funding was coming there. The talent was coming here. Then the infrastructure. So once I'd say the late Mayor Ed Lee came into office, he obviously gave a massive tax break too. And San Francisco grew from really like a town to like a city. And it was yeah. like a teenager growing up really fast and trying to figure it itself out. So it went from like, I'd say it was like around 600,000 people into 2010 to nearly a million by 2020 with like insane growth. When I was in Soma, for example, towers and towers were built um, yeah. in the early 2010s, left and right. I mean, I used to live there and I just, at some point, couldn't handle the noise and the construction. It just felt like a mini Same. Manhattan. So, yep. but it's cool. Like you look at the skyline now and, you know, whatever your thoughts is, for me, I'm biased. I think the Salesforce building kind of has that, a little bit of that West Coast Manhattan feel because you're driving in from any part of the direction of Bay Area or even flying, you know, to SFO, you can see that tower. Like it's, yep. it, it has a symbolism of San Francisco now. So, yeah, it was an incredible era. Things were flowing, businesses, everything, like the era of technology in everybody's household from your smartphone to social media and beyond, you know, was one thing. So yeah, I think, and I'm, I'm fortunate and I've met you're fortunate to, you know, have your career there. So how long were you yeah. at Facebook and did you stay in San Francisco during this golden era? I'm assuming you did. I did. Oh yeah, of course. So I was at Facebook like 2010 through 2013, give or take. So it wasn't long. It was a few years, but it was like, you know, this is my formative, like we took the company public during this time to Facebook public, Twitter went public at the same time. And like, I'll tell everyone, like, I mean, I don't know if everyone realizes this, like Facebook as a company was actually forced to go public because they exceeded how many shareholders could be a shareholder when they were a private company. So like just to distill that down, like yeah. Facebook didn't want to go public at the time that they did. This was pre-Jobs Act. The Jobs Act came out, Jobs Act 2012. Wow, yeah. Most of the Jobs Act was actually written because of Facebook. Most of the titles and provisions of the Jobs Act are because of Facebook. So Facebook exceeded how many investors they could have. And I think this was like what fascinated me, to be honest. This is like literally what led to the rest of my career and what I do today, which is I didn't realize companies could have too many investors. I was like, that's wild to me. Like, that's crazy. The reason Facebook, so Facebook literally like they got kicked out the door. The SEC was like, you have to go public. You have too many investors, go public. So they did. And they got a lot of fines. And I don't know if you remember this, but like, Facebook stock crashed and they they froze the stock. Yeah, right away. Like I feel like this is really important for this generation. Like if you don't realize it, like some of the best tech companies of today had an absolute fumble of an IPO going out the door, especially back in those years. And um so Facebook stock got halted. Mark Zuckerberg had to write a letter saying like sorry, we suck, but just like hold on to our stock. I don't know if you remember this. He published a letter. To, I think he, it got published in like the New York Times or Wall Street Journal or something. He published a letter and it was like, because some of the news like put like full page ads of this letter. And it was a letter that said, we suck. Just hold on to our stock for 10 years. And I promise it'll do better. That's what Mark Zuckerberg wow. said. In that, that letter. Is a brilliant take. That's for sure. It, yeah, I was in college and I had a college professor who told me if Apple ever goes under $20, buy. So I did. <laughs> I held yes. it for almost 10 years. I should have held it even more so. Uh, <laughs> so yes. there's some parallels to that discussion point here. You know, obviously the different companies and different generations and so forth. But yeah, wow. So I'm curious. You mentioned, you know, obviously the Facebook having more insane amount of shareholders, both obviously from employees, investors, and so forth. 
to shape really that law in 2012. Is it called the Jobs Act, as you mentioned? Yeah. Uh, I can't believe it's 12, 10 years already. But yeah, it shaped kind of your career path after that. So yeah. is that when you went to basically co-founded uh, Forge? Like, or no, am I jumping? Uh, yeah, no, no, no. That's, I mean, a lot of this isn't even like, I just get so like humbled about talking about it, but it's great. So so here's what's funny. So Facebook had a satellite office in San Francisco. And it's funny because it was a satellite office. It was like a tiny office. And it was in the like original, I want to say it was the original WeWork. It was definitely the first WeWork in the city of San Francisco, but I don't know. There's a world where I, I think it might've been the first WeWork ever, but I could be wrong about that. It might've been in New York. Long story short, like this was the WeWork, first WeWork. It was back when WeWork actually was a foundation and not a company, which could be a whole entire separate podcast. <laughs> um, yeah. Many people don't know that it was originally a foundation. It wasn't actually a startup or a company or a C-Corp. So anyway, long story short, we had this office and we moved in and it was great. But what I was consumed with in that office, right? Like being very, like I was 21 at the time. I just saw a ton of startups because this is a co-working office. This was like the first real SF co-work. Sorry, you know what? It wasn't the first co-working space because you and I both know Rocket Space was like one of the first ones. I don't know if you remember that. It was like on Market Street and it was a different- I do remember Rocket Space, yes. Yes. And you know, I, we met, I believe we might've met even when through the, the I call it the, well, technically they call themselves the Australian Mafia, uh, the Startup <laughs> HQ and Startup House team folks that had it in Soma. That's where we met actually too. So yes. office spaces, yeah. Yeah, exactly. No, you're so right. That's uh, so to over 10 years ago. So like with all that yeah. said, like, there were co I think just for the record, right? For the podcast, for the listeners, it's yep. that there were co-working spaces that were really great, especially in San Francisco, which was at the prime, that were already doing really well before WeWork ever showed up. And so like WeWork came in and we were all like, all right, whatever, you're just in, you know, another co-working. So anyway, with all that said, I was immersed in startups. And even though I was working late for Facebook, I was getting to know all the startups in my co-working office. And I ended up meeting one where the technology, just to keep it really simple, it was technology where if you walked into a bar or a restaurant using geolocation, geofencing, basically your location on your mobile device, the app would find you and it would open a tab for you on the point of sale, the POS system for the bartender. So it would open a tab for you connected to your credit card before the concept of Square or wallets or whatever. Anyway, it was an awesome piece of technology where you literally just never, I was solving my own problem with this, which was I would leave my credit card at the bar all the time and I'd have to go get it the next day. So I just wanted tech. So me and some buddies that we had met in the co-working space in the WeWork built an app for this. Like we built an app. Very we cool. Ended up, yeah. We ended up selling, uh, selling the company really prematurely. And I think honestly, it's because we, none of us knew what we were doing and we were like square was becoming a big company and we're like, Oh my God, what are we doing? Like, yeah. so we sold it, you know, did the whole thing. Like it was cool. I was 21. I was like, what am I even doing? I'm selling a company. Let's do it. So we had, I had some minor success at that age. It's interesting. I'm sorry to interrupt, but like but, uh, you yeah. mentioned, Oh, it's a sell. Uh, you didn't know what you were doing. In reality, if you look back, there's many people who had the opportunity to do that. They didn't because they thought it's hindsight. It's very difficult. A lot of times it's being, you know, stubborn. It's being like, okay, I could definitely do this and go after it. But not, not everybody understands market dynamics and shifts. And you did, you guys noticed like obviously Square was growing and it's probably going to be the market leader. They had somebody like Jack Dorsey running it. So it probably worked out. So, yeah. yeah, and then you you were saying next, like you jumped in doing something else after? Yeah, so I did. I We sold it, jumped in doing something else. I was in, you know, I, I basically went to like our board of directors at that payments company and was like, hey, what do I do next? I'm 21. What am I going to do? Nice. Yeah. And they were like, they were like, well, why don't you come run a venture fund with what, excuse me, one of my board members was like, why don't you come run my venture fund? And my, yeah, one of my board members was part of the original, you know, founding team of Yahoo. So it was pretty cool. Like the Yahoo team was, I learned so much from, you know, David Philo, Jerry Yang and all these guys. And they were like, Hey, you know, their extended team, Naveen Singha, all those guys are like, come work for us. We're going to start a venture fund. 
So I was like, cool, like, that's great. Like, I'd love to help them. And with all that said, like, I went over to venture quickly. But what I will tell you is that in my two years of working with them, which was awesome, I had a ton of FOMO. Like I was so young and I was like, how do I even know how to advise startups? I'm a 21 year old female. Sure. I'd had like one little exit, whatever. It wasn't that big of a deal. I was like, what, why am I given? So what, do you have, what do you have FOMO for? Fear, what, like for those who don't <laughs> understand FOMO, first of all, <laughs> it's fear of missing out. Secondly, uh, <laughs> what, did you, what did you have FOMO of? I just, I saw them all building and I was like, I'm so young that why okay. did I, like, I felt yeah. like I had put up my, like, you know, turned up my hat and my like shingle and I was like retiring. I was like, why am I retiring by going to venture? That's how I thought at the time, which that was honestly very appropriate. That was so brilliant. So long story. And with all that said, like I went to find another startup to pursue and I ended up taking one of the guys from the Yahoo teams, like venture firm. And uh, we ended up building a company you know, kind of fast forward, we dabbled in a project that was a, like a legal tech startup, which was kind of like cool, but it was like we could scale. What we ended up doing was, and this is where like the success happens. This is the story of like, okay, this is how she actually is, does what she's doing and all the cool stuff. <laughs> so I lived in Soma, just like you. I was out in Soma, south of Market for the listeners who might not be familiar. There's Market Street, which runs through San Francisco. And really kind of cuts the main part of the city in half, if you'd agree with that. And the north side is downtown. The south of Market literally is a, I would say it's more like uh, southeast. But yeah, yeah, Soma, yeah. Where all the towers and most of the tech companies are. Yep, exactly. I went Soma at the time. So this is still like kind of early 2010s. It was pre-2015, you know, 2010, 2014. Great time. This is, you know, still. So Facebook, Twitter had gone public, Dropbox, Airbnb, Pinterest, SpaceX, you name it. Like there were all the Snapchat. Like these were the rise of the next generation of the startups were happening. And it was awesome to watch it play out. DoorDash, like, you know, Instacart, Founders uh, Circle. Um, it was an amazing community. And like we all just really helped each other. And it was awesome to be there at the time. So I lived in a building in Soma where it was a bunch of founders, a bunch of, you know, whatever. I met my co-founder of a company that we started called Forge Global, which inevitably went public via SPAC a few months ago. We met in our building. We ended up just going out in Soma together, going to founders events, this and that. It was an awesome time to be there, as I said. And I ended up taking a lawyer, an actual lawyer from the venture fund that I had been a part of with the Yahoo founders. And I put them all together. This, my buddy who was at the time, the one I'd met, I said, you know, we lived in the same building. He was a product manager at Zynga at the time. So Zynga, just for all the listeners too, Zynga was a Silicon Valley, you know, San Francisco darling for a very long time. And we all, I think we all benefited from free lunch at least once or twice from Zynga. I don't know if you did, <laughs> but, but I think we all did. Correct. Yes. Yes. They, yeah, they kept yeah. all well fed. <laughs> Zynga was like the, the real poster child social gaming company that Facebook. So Facebook launched the apps, their app store. Zuck announced that. And Zynga was like the biggest gaming one. And they surpassed and survived the basically once they closed the app store and they doubled down on social. Then it became like, social and mobile and they're still pretty much heavily mobile and, and expanding and publicly traded and now they're part of 2k games take two so pretty wild but yeah i remember actually when zynga started they they were in a small startup office maybe maybe over 100 200 people and then all of a sudden it took over the at back in my generation it was like the sega genesis campus and it's now the zynga campus that you can see off of uh, highway 101 yeah so when they yeah. did that, I was like, okay, this, like, I think Zynga and Twitter and Yelp were like the first poster child tech companies in that era to really take off and focus on their campus being in San Francisco. And then all the ones you mentioned were like kind of following along. Yep, exactly. So this was, this was again, still like, I mean, to this day, I still think SF is in such a golden era and, and that's me being like excited about what happens next there. But like, 
this point in time, like it was every major startup had an awesome, had a major office. Everyone was like, you know, hosting younger startups and being supportive and accelerators and incubators were really getting their footing. And so basically like I got together with all my crew, like this crew of like lawyer, my founder buddy. And we said, you know, what's interesting about this moment in time is there are some really big startups that honestly, like this is 2012, 20, or really, you know, I should say 2013, 2014. Sure. And at that point in time, which is almost 10 years ago, yeah. there was still a lot of like excitement around startups. But at the same time, people were like, are valuations too high? Like, are they too high? And at the time, Zynga, being such a poster child, was gearing up for like a highly anticipated IPO. But in advance of their IPO, if anyone remembers this, Zynga had to do a wave of layoffs for like three to six months. And it always hit the news, was like layoff, layoff, layoff before they go public. And my buddy who uh, wheeled me and started this company together, it was like he was working there. So we were building our startup, which I'm about to tell everyone about, <laughs> while he's at Zynga. And all he wanted to do was short Zynga before it went public. He wow. All he wanted to do. He goes, listen, he said, Andrea, I love where I work, but I hate it. And I think the company will, like stock will tank once it goes public, which by the way, it did. It he was did. in It stayed there for a while. Yeah. A long time. <laughs> Long time, yeah. still less than five cents. Wow. So with all that said, he was short? Like, well, I mean, this is what we did. So this is how we started Forge Global, which okay. obviously this back. He yeah. said, why don't we create like, and I, by the way, we're all at the time, we're like 22, right? Like we're 22. So is my co-founder. And uh, luckily our lawyer co-founder, he himself was a little older. So he's keeping us in check and keeping us out of jail at the time. But he said, my buddy who's my age, he goes, why don't we create a financial instrument to short startups before they go public? Wow. And I said, yeah. brilliant. And like, let's make it like, let's fucking make it. So we literally dove into the nuance of financial instruments. I was shameless and I still am, but like, I was shameless. I was emailing, you know, the top guys at every you know, Citadel and JP Morgan and UBS. And I was like Michael Burry in the big short. I was literally going into these meetings being like, I'm going to short startups. And they were like, ha 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 ha. How are you? Gonna do that? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but it was great because we were green enough to not know what we were doing. Right. Which I think is half the battle with a startup in most instances. You just don't yeah. know what you're doing. So you're just going to take every blow and just deal with it. So fast forward we raised a seed round. We raised a series A round. The company at the time was called Equidate. And by the way, Equidate was a merge of the words liquidate and equity. Oh, and yeah. um, the reason we ultimately changed the name to Forge Global, no joke, well, there was accumulation of things. But one of the reasons was the person who owned Equidate.com was a woman who had a, an equestrian dating website. And she would not... I was just about to say... <laughs> <laughs> I wish That's I was amazing. Thinking, she would not sell us the domain for equity.com. We said, listen, lady, your equestrian dating site is literally built in Comic Sans and we will pay you anything you want. But obviously we had a cap. We had raised some small venture dollars, but like not nearly enough to say that. But I was like, we'll pay you money. And she was like, there's no amount of money that will let you buy this domain for equity.com. And I was like, okay, <laughs> cool. Amazing. Um, yeah whole thing. So anyway, fast forward, we build a financial instrument to basically short startups. That's what we built. Very cool. Yeah. yeah. And how long, you know, did you guys do this? How big did you get? Did you sell it? How long was this going on for? Yeah. So this was 10 years. I mean, like we just have why like building startups to this day, like I will tell you, like, this is the thing. Forge Global is not Dropbox. We're not Airbnb. We are a company that ended up exiting at two and a half billion dollar market cap, which I think is exactly like, I mean, I'm humbled literally all day. When people come up to you and say that they know your startup and they're yeah. like, it's years later. That is the funniest, by the way, with you, by the way, I always think of Pebble, Shabir. I'm like, oh, okay, yeah. <laughs> all day. Uh, yeah. I still remember everything about Pebble Watch, the whole brand, the mission, like, you know, the whole thing. And so 
I think that's the coolest thing ever is when people still know your startup, even if it becomes a public company. I'm like, we ended up growing our founding team by a couple more people. We ended up scaling the business. I left to go work at the NASDAQ stock exchange. I really wanted to learn how to build exchange software to trade any form of a digital asset. So I went to yeah, NASDAQ. Incredible. Yep. I remember you were the new NASDAQ in San Francisco just opened up and you were the face. You yeah, were the person. No, I, yeah. I appreciate that. Yeah. So I don't know at the, at the time, like leaving your own startup is really, really tough. Right. But what I, what I did was like, I realized I was so young and I was like, I really don't know anything. I don't know anything. That's what I said to myself. I was like, I don't know shit. I'd already done all this stuff. I had had an exit, all these things, but I was like, I really don't know enough. So what had happened was that I cold emailed the president of the NASDAQ stock exchange and was like, I don't know you. But I feel like you've probably read about my startup because we had already started getting a lot of attention for what we were building with the financial instrument to short startups. But I was like, here's the link. I literally wrote an email. I was like, I don't know what I'm doing, (laughs) but I feel like I should leave my own startup and like go work for a stock exchange and learn how to build a stock exchange before trying to come back and like help my own startup do better later. That's what I did. And so wow, cool. it was a it was a whole weird transition, the whole thing. But like, yeah, I mean, it, obviously they've been like, okay, do we trust this person or not? Or like, wow, this is very cool. We need someone who's young and energetic, and they probably could bring a dynamic community to it. So I can see why they really uh, obviously hired you and you uh, you grew it. One quick note on like you, you mentioned Pebble and like having an actual product that people recognize. I'll never forget. You know, I told Eric when I joined. Yes, I'm in and. I went on a trip quickly to Mexico before I, I joined. I went on a flight from San Francisco to Mexico City. I mean, between my flight from Mexico City to Cancun, I saw somebody wear a pebble. And I was oh, like, wow. wow, this is like the first generation pebble watch. Literally on a domestic flight in Mexico, I saw somebody wear it. And at that point, I knew this is going to be a special company. And it felt good to see that like firsthand, right? An actual consumer-based product, which is different from like what I've been doing the last in and out between Pebble, which is like, you know, apps and iPhone apps. There's something a little bit more unique when you have a tangible product. But in any case, it's always exciting when people say, yeah. oh, I played that application or a game. So <laughs> there's there's nothing wrong with that. But yeah, it's I definitely amazing. had that moment. Yeah, it was cool. So with the time remaining, I want to like see how long were you in NASDAQ? What did you do there? What did you do after? And uh, we'd love to get into like what you're doing today, actually, with like Manhattan, you know, yeah. Bank. So I think fundamentally, like the theme that I've, I've kind of stuck with is, you know, sure, like what that kind of where we had built Forge Global was like how the the foundational idea was how do we short startups to kind of fast forwarding to today, which was like, how do we create not necessarily to short startups, but to create a way to allow shareholders of private companies, whether it's a startup of mom and pop, anything that's still a private entity. How do we allow them to get some form of liquidity without the need for an IPO or for an M&A event? And so like fast forward to today, as a partner at my fund, Manhattan Venture Partners, we are like a behemoth in like a very awesome, cool way, which is like we work with shareholders of really cool startups or any form of company that's like doing really, really well that you know, at least just has some form of traction that we can validate, like we've got to validate. But what we do is we end up working with companies and with the shareholders to give them liquidity. And when I say that, it means that like just very easily, our investment strategy as a venture fund is that we aren't always investing in like the next round of funding, like the series A, B, C, D, F, G. I would say we do that 20% of the time. The other 80% of the time, we're actually going in, like I said, we're working with the employees and the founders, the inv- other investors, and we're giving them liquidity by actually investing in buying their stock now. And we're doing it out of really, like we're always pricing it at a really relative to the last round or, you know, we create a model around what that looks like. And it's really, especially in today's market where there's like a lot of, you know, there's a lot of folks, unfortunately, that are dealing with some tough times with where the market is and otherwise we created a whole fund around that. And so this all stems from my time of building my own startup of saying, like I said, it went from being like, how do we short startups to how do we help shareholders of startups get liquidity in an illiquid asset, which is a private company stock. 
And so that's where my entire career has been based. And so, you know, at our fund, that's what we do. And, you know, I joined as a general partner after they'd already built the foundation of my firm. And I'll tell those of you who are looking at venture, you know, building a friendship with the venture funds you admire before you ever join them, I think is a really awesome way to like, just kind of get your foot in the door. And that's what I did for years before I ever joined my own team now. Yeah, very smart. And I could see the parallels, which you were saying with, uh, Oh, yeah, like the Facebook IPO and the passion you had of seeing, they were really the first to have like insane amount of uh, shareholders in yeah. selling shares on a private market before they went public and everybody else was starting to copy them, right? Yeah. Um, so it's great to see you guys at Manhattan Venture Partners are doing this at almost every level of the stages of the companies. And, and by the way, if people don't know, you've been you know, in the forefront of like being a thought leader in the VC world, being featured in Bloomberg with all the trends and things of what's happening. So, uh, yeah, it's exciting to see that. And, um, and it's been a lot of fun having you on the Chabert show. And do you, I guess with like one last question or so is like, what's your thoughts on like through like 2022, what's your thoughts for the rest? What's your thoughts on 2023 and beyond? Are you looking at kind of what's the trends for your fund? Are you continuing the path that you guys are doing? What excites you for the future? Yeah. Well, I'll say this. Personally, I do think remote trends are here to stay. I think that digital assets and... Well, here's what I'll say. Everyone wants to share in the ownership upside of what is created, whether it's content, an asset, whether it's physical or digitally, and what the world looks like. And I think that that community sharing of an asset, like I said, digital, physical, whatever it is, is going to be so key to the next wave of wealth generation. And so between the ability for all of us to be remote, be digital, be nomadic, be transient, whatever you want to call it, like I do think everyone wants to own a little bit of something and own the growth of something versus it's it's not a, you know, one person takes all of wealth, which I think has been the premise of like how generations of wealth prior to us have been created. So Do I think that the next wave of what excites me is like the foundation for building a strong marketplace? Yes. Obviously, since I built marketplaces, exchanges, I, you know, have a sense of like how to do it in a way that's like something that both a buyer and a seller of whatever asset we're talking about is important. So I think anything that's a digital wave of marketplaces, digital asset creation and wealth generation, I'm really excited about. I think that if you're going to play games on the internet, you should be paid to play those games. So pay to earn, I'm sorry, pay to play or play to earn. Various versions of that are like what the next wave of gaming is going to be. And so I think, but just generally too, I will tell you, Shabira, the one thing I'll stick with is I am a sucker for a really good enterprise SaaS business that kind of builds infrastructure for other, you know, Amazon web services of the world. So I'll always be looking at stuff like that. But, uh, yeah, I mean, just generally, let's democratize what wealth looks like. I think that's the coolest trend I see. That's really exciting. I love that the concept of uh, democratizing and sharing kind of the ownership and growth of like the American spirit, which is entrepreneurship, really, and living the, yeah. the dream. So, Andrea, Juan, this has been fantastic. Thank you so much for being part of the Chaubert Show. And everybody, I hope you enjoyed it. And thank you again. Thank you so much for having me. I so, so appreciate it. Yeah.